Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 29. So we're going to call this episode, we're going to start out with uh, the concept of geologic awe and uh, do a little uh, more of a personal recounting of things in my life, and if I can pry some out of Bill, some things in Bill's life as well, uh, where there's there's a little source of awe in the everyday. I like which, that. of course, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to talk about the reason side of the uh, science and religion divide, but there's also a lot for other sides of the human person to reflect on and get involved with in this concept as well. That's a good point. I'd say uh, reason isn't of much use if it if it can't be paired at least occasionally with some good healthy awe. Well, yeah. What's what's reason even for, right? Right. So, right. Um. Thinking about that in the context of a novel, there's, uh, in certain circles, um, great uh, applause for a certain novel called Perdido Street Station by China Mieville, which is not necessarily, Bill, I'm not really recommending that you go out and buy that book. Uh, <laughs> okay. it's, it's, it's extremely postmodern in the sense that it's just relentlessly depressing, disgusting, the nastiness is just layered, you know, layer on layer on layer. But um, the climax, I'm getting toward the end of it, does contain what's obviously a kind of meditation on the difference between dreams and reason, artificial intelligence, uh, the capability of, you know, a computer to have reason, maybe consciousness of a sort, although I don't think that part's necessarily all that well thought out. Um yeah. But not emotion. And so what's, but what's reason even for, right? Yeah. Reason shows you how to get to an end. Right. But it's, but it doesn't have any ends to supply, or at least that's, that's, my, that's something that I realized or felt that I, uh, you know, a truth that I felt I arrived at a long time ago. Not exactly a new one in the history of the world, but. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, Reason kind of is our tool for the journey. It's not something that should allow us to presuppose and pre-impose uh, an, an endpoint uh, and, uh, you know, uh, ultimate uh, happiness or precisely the emotion we want to enjoy. Uh, reason is a reason is a is an excellent tool, right? It's it's a tool for the journey. Right. It's it's a servant. It should perhaps be your vizier. Perhaps it should be your prime minister. I like but, it. Uh, but uh, you're the sovereign. Where do you want to go? Yes, there has to be purpose behind it. Now, of course, purpose should not be driven by emotion per se. Uh, we we do want uh, we do want the intellect to guide our decision making about purpose and destination, right? Well, that's one of the things that reason has to do, right? You know, you, you exactly. look at what happens in your life when you follow certain urges or certain emotions, you know, what they suggest that you do, and then and then your reason is available to evaluate the results and whether you were actually content or felt peace or felt satisfaction at the end and decide whether the game was really worth the candle. That's that's certainly well within reason's province. But Yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, uh, don't let me interrupt. I like the uh, I like the uh, topic very much. Uh, so, yeah, please. Uh, well, I'm going to open up with a, with a little, yeah, a, a personal anecdote. Um, so when I first went away to college in 1997, and we first went on our field trip, uh, you know, I went to uh, I went to college in St. Louis, 
And if you get a bunch of geologists together, well, I mean, there are two things you can do. You could be a soft rock person. So this is, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. Stop me if I'm going into too much detail, Bill. But there are soft rock geologists and hard rock geologists. Have I talked about that before? No, I don't think so. There are people, I mean, soft rock is basically sedimentary rocks or even... Um, well, that was shade off into even environmental, and then you're just, you know, you could be dealing with just unconsolidated sediment, which there's a lot of in Indiana because the bulldozed, the glaciers just bulldozed a bunch of that into place and it's not even rock. You can't even get to a good solid rock in a lot of Indiana until you've dug down 50 or 100 feet. Wow. And, and, and in certain places near where you are actually, Bill, if you go to Elkhart, you might find 300 feet of sand before you found a good, uh, good solid rock of any kind, soft or hard. Whoa. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there's hard rock. Hard rock would be igneous and metamorphic rocks. Okay. And as someone whose interest in geology, I mean, always started with minerals and then, you know, was was uh, sort of huh, fanned into flame, if you'll forgive the uh, illusion <laughs> by Hawaii, by volcanic right. rocks. Right. Of course, I, I went straight in the hard rock direction because I was a perverse little boy who grew up in the farms of uh, Indiana and dreamed about hard rocks. <laughs> but such is life. So that was so that was where we went. We and and the uh, the school that I went actually contained a lot of hard rock geologists. Well, if you're in St. Louis, you're in luck because uh-huh. in the in the Midwest as a whole. There are very, very, very few places to go find actual hard rocks. You can find soft rocks. You can go find limestone. In fact, there's Indiana limestone, a great uh, geological export of the state from the southern third of the state. Yeah, yeah. Used to build the Empire State Building, among other notable things. I did not know that. Uh Uh-huh. There's an Empire Hole, I am told, down in southern Indiana. Like, a quarry was opened for the Empire State Building. Wow. Foremost number of blocks out of the ground, and then that was that pretty much spent the quarry. Wow, as I recall, somewhere near Bedford, Bedford, yeah. Indiana. And sometimes it's actually in Indiana. It's called Bedford Stone. Do you win. Um, in any case, that so that's that's soft rock. You can find soft rock if you look for it. Hard rock is awfully hard to find. I believe there's some up in Wisconsin. I think there's some. Nice up near Wisconsin Dells, if memory serves, so a metamorphic rock. Uh-huh. Um, but Missouri has just a little patch called the St. Francis Mountains. So they're part uh-huh. of the Ozarks. Uh-huh. And they are the source of a Missouri geological export, Missouri red granite. Okay. So if you go to a cemetery in, well, I mean, anywhere in Indiana, and you happen to see a red granite tombstone, Nice, you know, I mean, obviously the, uh, the it's it's going to be granite, so nice, big, visible to the naked eye grains of different minerals. A lot of them are pink, and that gives the granite its overall color. That usually comes from Missouri. There's a lot of that in Missouri. Okay. Um, and if you go to St. Louis, and especially if you go to a Washington University campus, almost yeah. all the buildings are built, as a matter of fact, with faced with Missouri red granite. And the corners are Indiana limestone. <laughs> uh-huh. so right there, it's a complete package. Yeah, really. So that's hard rock, and that's old. Hard rock often is very old. Certainly in the uh, mid-continent of North America, it's been a very long time since any of the processes that generate igneous or metamorphic rock have really been working in, in, anywhere in that vicinity. Right. So right. those rocks are. So we go out to see those because, of course. The hard rock geologists at WashU wanted to go see, by God, real rocks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So, so we went out to see those, and, and there's not just granite, but there's the volcanic equivalent. So granite is a, an igneous rock, so it was a magma, and it cooled underground, and that's why it cooled very slowly, and uh, grains were able to grow to the point that they're millimeters on a side, visible to the naked eye. That means they cooled very slowly. Right. If you have the volcanic equivalent, well, that's very sticky magma. If you manage to erupt that, you don't actually get nice lava flows like you do in Hawaii. You get cataclysms. Uh, you get uh, pressure builds up behind this really sticky lava and blows it out, and you get often something called an, uh, a glowing cloud, uh, or sometimes it's known by the French term nue ardente, or ardente. Um, if you want to sort of Spanishize it and actually pronounce the last E, I've heard, I've heard varieties of pronunciation. Um, it's, they're very famous because they destroyed a, a city in the Caribbean back in, I believe, 1902. I think that was one of the first well-documented volcanic eruptions that had that type of activity. Uh, so that's that sticky magma. Um, it, it turns, you know, it, it's blown out with an enormous amount of gas pressure behind it, and it's just cataclysmic. And it sets up that soft, sticky magma or lava at this point because it's been blown out from the subsurface. It'll set up into something called rhyolite or possibly dacite, depending on where you're at. But this is rhyolite, so it's also pink because, of course, it's the same stuff as the granite, and it, uh, it sets up in the same color. So you see that hard rock. Okay. And so certain places you'll see the contact. And there are, you know, a contact is just where you go from one rock formation to another. And a rock, uh, uh, I mean, make sure to get the uh, terms right. <laughs> one of the things you do in Geology 101 uh, is, is learn the different terms for different kinds of contacts where a lot of time has gone by between one rock and the next. Uh huh. If, if, as far as we can tell, basically it went straight from uh, depositing the material that became one rock to depositing the material that came the ne became the next rock. That's called a conformable contact. They're okay. in conformity with each other, and that's often not the case. And if that's not the case, you have an unconformity. Okay. And if you have an igneous rock that's been exposed at the Earth's surface and weathered down, and then you get a sedimentary rock deposited on top of that, that's called a non-conformity. Okay. And I'll stop right there, because it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go into the other terms. If it's confusing enough, if you actually took three lectures to try to explain it all. Um, so a non-conformity. There's been a lot of space. And in fact, so these non-conformities that we go and see out in the St. Francis Mountains, they'd have, uh, gosh, what was the name of that sandstone on top of it? I don't remember anymore. That's that's very sad. That, that depresses me quite a bit. Um, but in fact, there would be a conglomerate, actually, at the very bottom, right on top of this granite, which is basically worn out, you know, weathered boulders and cobbles and pebbles of granite uh, with sand. Lamont sandstone? That may have been what it was called. But in any case, so that's Cambrian. Okay. Even though, even though in many cases it's pieces of the underlying granite and rhyolite, um, but that nonconformity, there's a billion years missing there, billion with a B. Wow. And that's just, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling because those those rocks on top are Cambrian in age. So the Cambrian is the earliest point in the geologic record where there are widespread fossils that you can see with the naked eye. We've okay. searched the whole world and found a few uh, visible fossils that are older, in, and the, the, those are mostly of organisms, well, those are entire, 
entirely of organisms that don't have hard skeletal pieces or shells or anything like that. Right. So they're very hard to see. You only get them. You only get those fossils in very particular types of shales, basically. Right. Where the mud just settled on top of it and left this perfect imprint of this soft-bodied, you know, vaguely jellyfish-like thing or something. Um, so you can see a few of those older than the Cambrian, but the Cambrian is really where you actually see fossils. So in the 19th century, that was effectively the bottom of the time scale. Okay. And then anything older than that, all of these old basement rocks would be just called Precambrian. That was just all. That, that was just all you could call it. I see. Um, so of course, in the 20th century, as we talked about last time, with absolute dating, we can we can actually find so these the the pink actually in those minerals. The pink in those rocks is actually potassium feldspar. And potassium has a radioactive isotope, so you can radiometrically date it. Okay. And these rocks have been affected by hydrothermal activity, so it's not trivial finding good rocks to to do the dating, but you can. And you find a lot of dates that agree, and those dates that agree were around 1.5 billion years ago. Whoa. Mm-hmm. The Cambrian rocks are 500 million years old, give or take. Mm-hmm. So those, so the, that sandstone, 500 million years old, as old as the earliest shells. Well, you know, yeah. before there are trees, before yeah. such a thing as fish. Wow. Well, you know, the entire what 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 was the land surface of the earth covered with? Well, I guess there were probably biofilms. I guess there was bacteria. Maybe there were some kinds of fungi. I'm not enough of a, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough about fungi to have any idea whether there might have been some sort of lichen-esque something growing on the, but no trees, no grass, no, no plants that we would recognize. Um, an alien world already. And that, and those rocks are a third as old as those other rocks. Yeah. And those rocks are a third as old as the entire earth. Oh my goodness. You just, you just look at it and, and it just, well, I mean, usually, of course, you know, my classmates, I don't think thought nearly as much about it as I did. They had other things on their mind. They had <laughs> social lives. I don't blame them for that. <laughs> I kind of wanted one at that age, but I didn't. But that's another story for another time. Uh, possibly not on this podcast. But, but nevertheless, I mean, just that sense of awe and just that sense of smallness, right? You know, so if I'm lucky, lucky, well, if I, if I live a long time, if I live right. a really long time for a human being, I could be a hundred, I could be a hundred years old. Right. Okay. So a hundred times a hundred is 10,000. That's nothing. A <laughs> hundred times, a hundred times 10,000 is a million. That's not much. A yeah. hundred times a million is a hundred million. Okay. That's starting to get you somewhere. Five times that gets you back to the Cambrian. I mean, a hundred million years ago, there were dinosaurs. And dinosaurs are really kind of advanced. <laughs> it took a while. It yeah. took a while to get there. Sure, from the earliest. Yeah, yeah. There, there was only 400 million years of, uh, of animal life with hard parts uh, to get you up to the point of having Cretaceous dinosaurs. Yeah. So, it just, I mean, no, I mean, and you could, you could continue slicing it you know, however many different ways, but just that sense of being in contact with something so, so much bigger than yourself uh, yeah, that does not, could not possibly care about you specifically. I mean, you know, and it's, it's, you know, inanimate, obviously. Right. 
But to turn around and think, you know, and, and then to turn around and confront, you know, say the Christian claim again, or any religion where you believe that, you know, if you <laughs> you want to go new agey and talk about source energy or something and, and law of attraction. Do you hear about any of that, Bill? Or, A little or, bit. Satisfactorily insulated from that, yeah. Like, <laughs> I chose, I chose to isolate myself mostly from that. Mostly from that, yeah. I, I, I listen to, I listen to people from from that side of, uh, from that side of the, uh, the, the of society sometimes. They're interesting things, and then, you know, like anything, if if it works at all, it has to have some truth to it. And some people, you know, Sometimes it really is you just kind of have to get yourself out of the universe's way or God's way or, you know, being itself's way. I mean, right. that's that's often, you know, that's, you know, that that medieval theological, you know, Thomistic, you know, if some essay. It's not that far. That's that's not necessarily that far from, quote, source energy. Right. It's, it's you know, that's it's there. And, and so the the thing, the entity that brought this unit, you know, decided what the laws of this universe would be and, and whatever, whatever simple unifying principle will eventually find, you know, to, you know, it's, it's amazing how many even atheistic physicists are, are just absolutely certain that we'll find unifying laws. That's, you know, another way of looking at this problem. We're certain that, you know, our oh, four forces is too many. Mm hmm. You know, gravity and electromagnetism and the weak force and the strong force. And of course, you know, you look around and, and eventually you find we've already found a way to unify the electromagnetic and the weak forces. And like, ah, and, and we're, we're certain there'll, there'll be a unified force. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why are we so certain that it's going to be unified? Uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's, if that's anything, that's philosophy. Uh, right. And natural theology, specifically. It's our longing for God, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or our our, our 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 innate confidence that there is, you know, a central principle, um, right. a central being, a central ground of being, right, a single consistent ground of being. Um, but to know that that being set all of this in motion, so it has it's it wrote probably very simple laws for the universe, and then allowed the universe to multiply into, you know, an un you know a humanly incomprehensible number of entities right, right? many how many that's <laughs> there, there are estimates for how many baryons like neutrons and protons um and whatnot and think things like neutrons and protons there are in the universe and then you know with with scientific notation with exponential notation you know, it's 10 to the i don't know 30th or 40th or 50th or something um uh, you know, again, an, un an actually unthinkable number, although we have the ability to abstract to the point that we can manipulate those numbers, <laughs> which by itself is insane. Um, that's that, that's 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 bar that's bargaining with that, that's dabbling with black magic in some some sense. Indeed, yeah. Um, but so so, and out of all of that, this planet came into existence, and this planet. Is enough, right? You know, four and a half billion years of just this planet, you know, cooling off and the surface cracking into tectonic plates and those tectonic plates, you know, subduction, generating magmatic arcs, generating continents, continents ramming together, going into bigger continents, splitting up and ramming together into different continents. 
it just and and the immense waste of time waste in the sense of just an enormous landscape that we can't follow we just the, the data is not there we don't we we have bits and pieces we have glimpses yeah. of these of these lost worlds plural mm-hmm. and that you know already in the 19th century obviously yeah um you could that they could see that so you think about have you ever heard of the burgess shale no no so it's this rock formation out in british columbia if memory serves and it is one, it's, I believe it's called a Lagerstaden, is a German term for a, yeah. we were mentioning it earlier, the type of shale where it was, the mud, the mud was just so still, mm-hmm. just so still, and living things died there and were buried in the mud, and you just have the, a wealth of detail that you have nowhere else in ordinary rocks. Wow. Preserved of living things. So the Burgess Shale is Cambrian. Pretty mm-hmm. sure it's Cambrian. So this is preserving, you know, as it were, life's first experiments in having hard bodies and, and many creatures not having hard bodies. So, I mean, of course, we have this today, right? We still have jellyfish and whatnot. Um, and, and just to look at how different it all is. Yeah. And just the turnover, how many times um, there have been different worlds, almost, you know, almost none of the denizens of which we would even recognize today. Right. Just just the the immensity of the scale of it. And, you know, and then to turn around and sort of confront the, you know, the world is 6,000 years old and it was it was created just like this. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, that we had, you know, is in, in, you know, that, that was a, that was the most simplistic interpretation of the book of Genesis. And so, you know, by Occam's razor, you know, yeah, in, in the year 1600, what else would you think? Right. Because no one had bothered paying that much attention to the rocks. Yeah. Uh, and that's. You know, but but just to, you know, and, and again, to take reason, you know, to let your reason uh, sit in the back seat for a little while and just look <laughs> for a like bit. That. Right. Um, and then just to compare those two worldviews on, I mean, on aesthetic grounds, which one is created by a more powerful, more awe-inspiring creator? Yeah. The one that just snapped its fingers and brought all of this complexity into existence in a moment, or the one that wrote these fundamental laws and, you know, has been, you know, hovering. I mean, because, of course, again, Thomas Aquinas would assure you nothing can exist without existence itself. Right. Um, you know, and, and so it's been there, you know, billions of years after billions of years as the universe and this galaxy and our solar system and our planet and the tectonic plate that we're on and the different streams of life that, you know, brought us and our crops and our domestic animals and everything we see in our landscapes and in the seas and roaming the uh, roaming the wilderness, you know, just from those, you know, budding that all flower. Yeah. All of that bud out and flower from just that, from just those very simple principles. Yes. Which, yeah. one, which, 
which one is more, you know, powerful, admirable, desirable? I mean, it's not an, it's not a question that admits of a, you know, a, a hard defensible answer, but, you know, I'll go with the latter every time. Yes. Yeah. It's ironic that, uh, that immensity of time and of everything else, uh, is, uh, you know, gives us the delight of contemplating and is in some sense synonymous with, uh, the awe inspiring truth of God. But in our own day, in our everyday lives, we want to, uh, force God into our own very rapid impatient timelines we want god to be uh you know instantaneous like our technology right yeah we want to oversimplify him yeah well yeah i mean and and it's it's much more comfortable you know the closer you can get things to your own time scale and the in a way you can get more comfort um the the illusion of something like control or at least the illusion of understanding it completely and there not being anything else to think about. I don't know. Yes. Yes. I mean, and, and of course the most, you know, it, I don't think you understand, you know, I, I think you sell the incarnation short if you don't realize just what a being it is that has emptied itself you know, think about, you know, when you have that whole scale of the universe and the being that created it and wrote its laws in mind, that being emptied itself and became man. Awesome. Uh, literally awesome. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, that's really, uh, I, I like that uh, geological approach to awe. And thank goodness we still have those aspects of science that can reintroduce awe into our lives at a time when awe is not something that a lot of people experience, and many even choose to avoid it. Huh. Well, yeah, having having taught uh, first year geology, I can I can testify that people do in fact <laughs> people do in fact avoid it. They have other things they would rather spend their uh, time and attention on. Exactly. Yeah, and yet we use we use the word awesome so blithely now. We do. We do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh that, yeah, that terrifies me. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm, an, I'm an unrepentant Gen Xer. I, I am not. Uh, <laughs> I'm not crossing that divide. Uh, very I'm, good. <laughs> I'm not going to say that word unless I actually mean it. Oh, very good. <laughs> uh, well, would that be a good place to, to uh, stop this episode with that uh, appreciation of awe? I think that's yeah. That's that's uh, we are we are both laboring well under some time constraints today. So uh, we will, we'll probably call it there and okay. uh, congratulate ourselves on mastering uh, this new piece of technology. This is our first episode that we recorded using Skype. So. Yes, yes, yeah. And uh, talk about uh, talk about uh, uh, lengths of time. Uh, it seemed as though. Um, uh, we started our efforts with Skype during the uh, uh, Cambrian uh, age there. Uh, <laughs> it took us an hour to... Uh, or to use a Tolkien metaphor back when the white tree and the golden were still in flower. Yeah, oh, yeah. marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And yet Skype promises everything instantaneously, and perhaps we'll come to that stage. But uh, well, and we'll we'll leave it as a teaser for our uh, uh, listeners as to why we're trying to master Skype because of right. Try to interview someone well worth the effort of uh, attempting to, to master Skype to get it done. That's right. Yes, that's something that our uh, will invite our listeners to be patient about over time, over a relatively short period of time, because there'll be more interviews coming. But this was a, a, another enjoyable conversation one on one. I thank you uh, uh, for it, Paul. Oh, yeah, it was great to have you, Bill, and I'm glad we finally got it domesticated to the point to get it done. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And back to you soon. Uh, not, uh, uh, not over billions of years. <laughs> not over billions of years. Just next week. Take care. Right. Thank you.